You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Vincent Puglisi, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. When I started this podcast, my intentions may have been somewhat selfish. It was all about me getting my voice out into the world, building my brand, showing people how smart I was. Me, me, me. But I quickly realized that being a podcast host gave me quite a platform to celebrate others. By inviting a guest, I was selflessly promoting what they had to say, teach, or talk about. I quickly realized that the best thing about podcasting was that it wasn't about me at all. I began to find real joy in helping my listeners and promoting the guests whose voices I believed in. And two amazing things happened. One, I started to enjoy myself a heck of a lot more. And two, unexpected and wonderful opportunities started to come my way, which never had happened before when I had been so self-centered. Huh. Who would have thought? Vincent Puglisi wears many hats. He is a husband, a father, community member, and mentor. He is also the author of Freelance to Freedom and the founder of the Total Life Freedom Community. His new book is titled The Wealth of Connection. Vincent Puglisi, welcome back to Earn and Invest. At the beginning of your new book, The Wealth of Connection, you say that in the world of business, we have done just about everything wrong right from the start. How so? How did you do things wrong and did it hold you back? I didn't know what I was doing. And... I think it was such a benefit that I didn't have this formula to follow, how to become successful. Here's what you need to do. Here are the seven steps to whatever. And what I learned was I've always been about connection. I've always been about relationships. And I followed some of the you know, true practices, best, best practices to do. And it never aligned with me in terms of how I wanted to go about business. I love doing things that aren't essentially scalable, as everybody will tell you to do. Here's how you need to do it. You need to build the email list. You need to have this funnel. And I get it, but it never resonated with me. But what resonated with me was conversations, were helping other people out, was bringing people together. But it didn't follow in terms of people would say to me like, well, that takes too much time. And I'm like, why are we doing this? And that was the question I'd ask. And this is why I was doing it wrong, essentially was doing it wrong from what the gurus were saying to do but it always worked. So we wound up building a photography business. We wound up building a successful online course, a podcast, a membership community, speaking, all these different things worked, but they never went by the business best practices. It was never by what was supposed to happen. 
And that's what this book, that's where it kind of came together. It was like, wait a second, you can be successful in this world in multiple industries, transferable skills without doing it the way that everybody tells you, you have to do it, which to me didn't seem very authentic. It seemed like a formula. I didn't want to be a salesperson. I didn't want to sell my stuff per se. I wanted to build relationships and do work that people appreciated. So that's where that, you know, in that quote from the book in terms of guns and roses, which was a really funny thing for me to learn. And I wrote it right at the very end of the book. That was not the beginning, but it turned out to be the start of the book, which was, you know, they were, they were on tour and they were, you know, in the eighties, they were the biggest, you know, metal band around and they did it all wrong. They weren't technically sound. They didn't have everything down the way all these other bands did it, but they were so relatable to their audience that they, they just blew up. And when I heard that, and I heard this audience, Deep Purple, who was the, you know, they were the headliners of the show. And that's where the quote came from. Like, why have they been so successful that they've been doing it wrong right from the start? And when I read that, I was like, that's what we'd done. And it worked. And I would never, I was never able to explain it until then. And I've kind of embraced that from there. You know, I so connect with that idea because whenever I see one of those, like the seven ways to do something, I never seem to connect with it because it always seems like there's some piece of the sauce that's not there. Like you can't just list it out in those seven ideas and get it right. Even if you follow everything perfectly. Well, there's very little authenticity to that. And there's very, very little individuality. Like where's my voice in that? Where's how I'm different in that? Because if here's the seven steps, this is what, you know, and you and I've had this conversation about school and about like, I'm very much an outlier in terms of that. I never did well in school because I didn't want to follow directions. And I remember at 17 years old, I grew up on Long Island where everybody was going to Tufts and Harvard and I'm barely getting into Nassau Community College. And I remember a friend of mine saying like, what are you going to do? He was worried about me mid-senior year. And I remember saying to him, I have no idea, but I'll figure something out. And I remember walking down the hallway and saying to myself, why were you so confident when you said that? To myself, I was confident when I said, even though I had no clue what I was going to do. I just knew I can get into adult conversations and make people laugh. I can make different people of different levels think. My teachers didn't like me because I didn't follow directions well, but I can make them laugh and I can make them think. I knew that was transferable to the real world. It just wasn't a step-by-step formula. And I think that's what so much of the business world has become. You follow this guru and, and the way they did it. It's all different worlds for all of us. And I think the individuality has been stripped away from a lot of that. Let's go back to those days wandering around in those high school halls. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do with your life back then? And did the educational system help you figure that out? It was kind of the opposite. So <laughs> teachers, you know, administrators cover your ears for a few moments. It was the opposite. I was, I was into sports. I was into music. That's all. I was into girls. That's all I really cared about, you know, in high school. I didn't care about the classes that they offered. It wasn't interesting to me, but I remember my guidance counselor, you know, pulling me into her office because she was concerned, as were a lot of people. And she said to me, what do you want to do with your life? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know. I'm 16. All I know is I don't want to wear a tie every day. So I told her and she got mad at me and she goes, no, I'm serious. And I said, no, I'm serious. I looked at her, you know, she's in this tiny little office with this guy behind her, this orange light. It was miserable. He's sitting with a tie, complaining about all these students, hating his job. I'm like, I don't want to do that. And she literally kicked me out of her office. And she said, just get out. And but what I learned from that as I was writing this, because I had talked about that in my first book, but what I learned later on was there was no curiosity. It was, it was, it was, you're going to follow 
what we're giving you. And here are the career paths you're going to take. And that's what it was. But if she would have said, here's the deal. You're totally into sports. You're five foot nine and a half and you're slow as molasses. You are never (laughs) going to be an athlete. I know you want to be. Can you just accept that it's never going to happen? And I'd be like, okay, yeah, I accept that. But this is what I would have appreciated. She would have said, but you don't have to be an athlete to be in that world. Do you know there are statisticians? There are writers. There are grounds crew people. There are photographers. They get to be on the field and get paid to be at these games and to hang around with these players. Like your heroes, you'll you'll be in a locker room with them. You'll be talking to them. That's your job. If she would have said that to me, I would have been the best student at Roslyn High School. I would have known from my interest a path that I can do. Instead, I was quite literally the worst student at Roslyn High School. I found out the day before graduation that I even graduated. Because there was no interest in what I was interested in. It was about, you know, this formulaic process of where you should get a job. So no, I know a lot of people that got a lot out of it. It was, it was the opposite. It was, it was once I left school and I got away from that all that I was able to kind of just craft the path for myself. You talk about crafting the path. And I feel like in the first chapter, you lay out your main hypothesis. You say most experienced entrepreneurs will tell you that the key to success is built around relationships and not coincidentally, stronger connections and relationships will grow your financial wealth as well. Tell me, do you remember when you had that epiphany? I mean, that's something that it takes many of us years to come to. Do you remember when that gelled, that idea that it was the relationships that was going to eventually lead to not just happiness, but actual wealth? It's probably only been the last decade, to be honest. It's probably only been, I've felt it coming. And the beautiful thing about this book is when you start going down that path, you start remembering stories that used to just be fun stories, but now they are, they are lessons and they are foundations to the growth. I'm like, oh my goodness. That was the, it wasn't just about this. It was about that. And then when that starts, it opens up a floodgate and you go, well, I knew that. I knew that was the key, but I didn't really pay attention to it because I was so focused on how do I pay the bills? Or I didn't pay attention to that because my ego got in the way. And I realized I was the one that really destroyed that relationship, not them. It was my ego that did it. It was my need for validation. And, oh, I blew that one. Oh, now I changed it around and I responded differently. And now it's thriving. It was really through the school of hard knocks and just an, almost just this slow epiphany of I've been doing things so wrong. And that was the other part of doing things wrong right from the start is, is I've done all the mistakes I talk about in this book. You know, I'm an incredibly selfish person, self-involved, my goals. And what I learned was I actually got the things that I wanted. And that was the hardest part because when you get what you want and you're still not happy, that's a really hard place to be. When you don't have it, you can say, oh, when I get, when I'm making six figures or when I have a million dollars, then it'll be good. When you get those things, when you get the adulation and you get the marquee and you get the money stuff and you kind of go, I still feel kind of empty. That didn't do it. That is when you kind of reflect on it. And that's where it kind of happened for me. When, when, when I realized that I got what I wanted by being selfish and chasing my goals and having my journals and my planners, like everyone does, what do you want? When I did all that stuff, and I didn't get it. I had to completely reflect and go backwards. That was really, I don't know what it was. It might've been, you know, mid you know, 2015, 2013, but around then it started to really click. Like I'm getting what I want, but it's not, it's not making me happy. 
I want to underline that point because I actually outlined in my notes of your book the question, have you ever considered what comes after you get what you want? Such a powerful question that I think my experience with podcasting and so many other things showed me too is sometimes you get what you think you wanted and realize that the prize at the end of the tunnel is not exactly what you were hoping it would be. Let's go back to some of these stories. I think a a real pleasant part of reading this manuscript for me was just the number of stories that you tell and how relevant they are to your story of success. The book is divided into five sections. You talk about character, curiosity, connection, collaboration, and creation. Let's start with character. You had a meeting or met with, at one point, the famed author, Seth Godin, and he taught you a lot about selfish versus generous goals. Tell us the story of how you interacted with him. This is when you were doing your thank you tour, basically, for your book. Yeah. For the first book, you know, I didn't feel like I'm the type of guy that's going to go to different bookstores for my first book and sit in front of a booth with a banner over it saying, hey buy my book and I'll sign up for you, even though you don't know who I am. I'm like, I am not there. So how about this? Instead of doing that, why don't we do what we talk about, which is freedom and family and adventure. And let's go on the road and let's take three months and we'll drive around as we have three boys and we homeschool. Let's go around the country and let's see the country, but let's thank the people that helped us do this. Cause that we left on the day of the book launch, January 2nd, 19, 2018. So we left for a three month trip and we got to, it was amazing. We got to bring our kids along, hand the book to people like Dave Ramsey, to Dan Miller from 48 Days, Pat Flynn, and John Lee Dumas, all these people that endorsed the book or helped with the message of the book. And one of the last people to meet was Seth Godin. He was doing an event in Orange, oh, where is it? Oh, no, I'm sorry, Oceanside, California, in Orange County. And so he's got this big event and he's being filmed for it. And I emailed him and he endorsed the book, right? And, and we had connected a couple of years earlier. And I went to a couple of his events and I asked him if he would endorse it. He did. And he gave a great endorsement to it. So I want to thank him because his name in the book did a lot for my own credibility to the public as as an unknown author. So so I messaged, can I hand you the book? I would love to give you a copy. So he said, sure. So we met up and I I got there. I saw him. I gave him the book. My kids made thank you cards for him. It was really cute. Purple cows on it. It was awesome. And I gave it to him and he goes, how'd the book launch go? And I said, it went fantastic. I had no expectations. And he said, that's perfect. He goes, it got real serious. He goes, never have any expectations when releasing a book. It's got 19 best-selling books. It was really great advice to hear. So I gave him the book and I'm, I sit in the front row and he puts my book under his chair, right? So this is like Nirvana for me. I'm like, Seth Godin has my book under his chair, right? No joke. I have a picture of my book <laughs> under his chair. Like, I thought that was like the pinnacle. And so we're going around people asking questions and I raise my hand and a woman next to me raised her hand. And they go to give the microphone and she goes, me first. And she grabs the microphone. I was like, ooh. And then she goes, she goes, so I've been struggling in business and you've mentioned generosity and, and I think I'm being selfish. Is, is, is being less selfish more the answer? And I'm sitting here like, <laughs> yeah, that's a funny question for you to ask. That's what you just did. And, and he goes, I think being less selfish is always the answer. And, and from that moment on, this book had the seed for it. Like, if being self, being less selfish is always the answer, what does that mean? So literally the book started at that moment. So I raised my hand next. And, I, and before I could ask my question, he said, Vincent, he calls my name out and he goes, tell us about your new book. And I got nervous. I'm like, 
I'm not here to promote. I didn't want to abuse this, this relationship and feel like I'm trying to get something. So he holds my book up for the crowd. And you hear like these gasps of people like, oh my goodness, he got his book held up by Seth Godin. And it's being recorded. You can find it on Amazon right now. I, I'm sorry, you can find it on YouTube right now, this clip of this happening. He's holding the book up. He goes, tell us about your new book. And I was like, no, no, no. So that's not why I'm here. And he goes, I know. He goes, I'm just trying to get you some product placement. And then like the laughter, like oh, you, what just happened there? And then I realized he has this major platform and he can use it any way he wants. There's nothing that I can do to help him. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to help him? That didn't matter. The generosity part of it was there from, from the beginning. So he knew he was going to hold that book up and he used his platform to put me over. And that was an essential part of this whole thing. Like who are the people that have put me over? And I thought back to Jim Jordan from NFL films that got me started. Larry Hagner from the dad edge that got me to do my first mastermind, all these different people that put me over. Seth just did that for me. And those are the people that I can't stop talking about. He could have said, pay me $5,000 and I would have put, you know, I would have paid it to hold, hold the book up. But I keep telling that story because he didn't ask for anything. He just did it. And it's my obligation now to celebrate the people who have done that for me and to be the one as my platform grows to put the people over that are, that are needing that from me. So I, it was just a major lesson that literally shaped the concept of that book from that one 20 minute encounter that happened. I feel it's easy to talk about people who are well-known, people like Seth Godin and how they can be generous when they have these huge platforms. But you go into some detail about a story of someone you knew who passed away named Scott Bennon. Tell us about Scott's story and what he taught you. Yeah, Scott was, we had just moved to Pittsburgh probably about 11, 12 years ago. And I joke, I said, there's nothing more valuable than an honest mechanic. Because if you get a dishonest mechanic, <laughs> you spend a lot of money yeah. you spend yeah. a, and you have no clue this happened. That, what am I going to do? I'm going to lift the hood. I know nothing about cars except to turn the ignition and turn the radio. I know nothing. So I'm going to challenge him that that $500 alternator is really good. And it's not, he could, he could take the whole engine apart, put it back together. Be like, it's a couple thousand dollars. And I'd be like, what am I going to do about it? So we, we, so we always go with the recommendation. So we moved and our friends, Missy and John said, Oh, you got to go to Scott Bain. And like, he's the best. He's the guy. So we go there and we take our car and there's an, there's an issue and he comes out and goes, he, the car's ready. And I go, what do we owe you? He goes, oh, nothing. It was a busted hose. I just put the hose together. I'm like, no, no, we're going to pay you. He goes, stop it. I put a hose together. It took me three seconds. By the way, our kids were little. Come on in. I was, Let me show you the shop because our kids are very much into that stuff. Took a half an hour showing them all the tools. But every time we came in there, he acted like we were the only ones in the world getting the kids pretzels, whatever they want. Anytime you need a job when you guys are old enough, you got a job here, sitting here talking to us about all. He was like the friend that you always want to have. And he's your mechanic. You just, you just trust him because he's not ripping you off. There was five or six times he never charged us for anything because it was minimal. We told everybody about him. That's our, that's our obligation. You got to go to Scott, just like they did for us. Well, we wake up one day and, and I'm on my computer and Elizabeth comes in crying and she's like, I think Scott died. And I'm like, what? I just saw him on Wednesday. And she's like, yeah, I, I just, I just heard it's on, on Facebook. So I go and there's the obituary online. He died of a heart attack. So we're just stunned. It's like a family member to us now. He's a mechanic and he's our, like our family member. So we go to the, to the wake and everybody's nervous because we don't know anybody there. We only know Scott and it's packed. So we think there's not going to be the last night of the wake. It's, it's, it's almost closed and the place is packed. 
And it's just nothing but stories about Scott. It's all these things that he did for people. All that, the way, everything he did for us, he was doing for everybody else. And I went up to his son, Ryan, and I said, you know, I gotta be honest with you. I thought we were kind of special, but I'm listening <laughs> to this and I'm like, I don't know if we were that special. And he, he goes, no, no, he loved you guys. It's just, that's the way he was. He was like that with everybody. And I went home from that funeral and that, that wake. And I said, what's mine going to be like? And I really, this is really, I sat in the living room, just sitting there. And I was like, would people come out for me that way? Would they talk about me the way they did with Scott? And Scott by no means is considered a celebrity successful. He ran a little auto shop in Bethel park, Pennsylvania, right? It wasn't, nobody would know him outside of his crew, but he made such an impact within his community that he completely changed the way I thought about legacy, how we do work. It's not about being the most successful, having the most followers. It's about how do you do this for the people in your life? And I mean, an everlasting impact that I want to keep telling that story because I want to keep his name alive. When I hear you talk about Scott, and even when I hear you talk about Seth, I really think about charisma, right? These were charismatic characters in your life. What's the difference between charisma and character? Because you say in the book, they're not exactly the same thing. We get fooled by charisma. I think we get fooled by it. I think a lot of times the A type of personalities are very charismatic. They know what to say. They know how to smile. They know how to do the, the, the whole thing. I've been fooled by, by charisma. I wouldn't say that I have charisma, but I want to have character. And a lot of times we think charisma is character. We've had friends. I've been fooled by it. I've, my, my family has been fooled by my friends that have had a lot of charisma, but they didn't have integrity, but they can win you over because they know the right things to say. They know the right compliments to say. They're, they're very wise. They're, they're very smart people. And they know if it's done without integrity, how to use it. And I just want to warn people that it's not, it can be mutually exclusive, but it's not necessarily. You, you can have charisma without character. And a lot of times when you know you have that charisma, there's, I give the story of Ken Lay from Enron, he, Enron before all clips. He had tons of charisma very little character. And he used people and he used his connections to get what he wanted, but not for the betterment of other people. And it's just, just being aware of, wait a second, that's not the same thing. It's going to, it'll probably save you from a lot of hurt in your life to be able to understand the difference between the two. Interesting. This idea that charisma plus integrity equals character, at least without that integrity, you just don't get to full character. No, because the charisma part, you will, it will eventually be found out. It will eventually be like, wait a second, you know, they kind of screwed me over a little bit. Oh, but they screwed you over a little bit. Oh, but they, this, that, and then you, it starts building up and it's anytime. Cause I was, I can write about this. Cause I was the person, I was the person that would cut corners to get what I needed. I was the one that would cut in front of you to get the picture that I, I was very self motivated on what I want to do. So I can develop a lot of that stuff. And I knew the difference only because I was that person. I can make fun of myself along the way, but I also I think you have to be in that spot to be able to see it. People are a little more trusting than I am. You know, New York Italian guys generally have a little less, what would be the word, like leeway for, for this. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to kind of question it a little bit. You, it's, it's trust but verify type of thing. It's not just trust and, and be rolled over by it. The second section of the book, A Wealth of Connections, deals with curiosity. And there is a... I'd almost say hilarious story about you and errant bus ride, Mets tickets, and the mafia. It turns out the mafia taught you a bit about curiosity, didn't they? They, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know it was the mafia. 
I'm a 15 year old kid and I'm a huge New York. Like I said, I was into sports, right? So the New York Mets in to date myself, 1986 were the best team in baseball, won the world series. I watched every game that year. My uncle was at game seven when they beat the Red Sox. And I was incredibly jealous that he didn't take me. Um, and that I want to go to the parade. There's a victory parade. I, I begged my mom to go. She's you're not going to New York city with a bunch of, you know, a million crazy people. She said to me, it's like, like it was so unreasonable. It seemed normal for me. I'm like, I want to do that. She wouldn't let me. So six months later is opening day. And I'm like, I've got to be there. They're going to raise the championship banner. They're going to get the world series. I have to be there again. She wouldn't let me go. So I talked my friend Scott into going. So I wouldn't go by myself. And I finally wore them down where I can go. And it's, it's a day game. So they're My parents are going to go to work. I'm going to go to the baseball game. A life without cell phones, it's so wonderful thinking back that I'd have to check in or anything. They didn't know where I was. So I go to Scott's house, and he's not allowed to go. His mom changed her mind. And I'm like, what do I do? So I go to my front lawn. I think about it, and I had heard the phrase, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. I'd heard that phrase before, but I'd never actually used it. So I said, there's no way for them to say anything. I'm going to go to the game. They don't know where I'm at. I'm not going to go back to school. So I get on the bus to go to the game. Have to get to another bus. And when I get on that bus, there's me, the bus driver, and this big, frightening looking guy. And I walk right past him. I'm like, this is, you know, this could be a problem, you know, and because I'm by myself and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have very much money. And about a few minutes into the bus ride, he looks at me with his deep voice and he goes, Shouldn't you be in school? And I was like, um, I'm going to the I'm going to the Mets game. And he goes, he laughs. He goes, by yourself, you're going? He goes, you know, you even have a ticket? And I'm getting nervous. I'm like, no, yeah, I'm going by myself, but I'm going to buy a ticket when I get to when I get to the game. And he looks at the bus driver like, you believe this kid? He's like, kid, this game's been sold out for months. The hottest ticket in town. He's like, how much money you got? So now he's asking me how much money I have. Like, is he going to try to rob me? Like, what is what is going on? And I said, I said, I got $30. And he laughs at me. He goes, you're not getting in. $30. And he just basically brushes me off. And I was just so thrilled that he wasn't talking to me anymore. And I just sat there by myself. And then I go to get off the bus. I'm like, let me get off this bus as quick as possible. And as I'm walking off the bus, he says one last thing. He goes, hey, kid. He goes, come here. He points to me like, waves me back. He gets like on my level. He goes, okay. And now you can see he's thought about it. He goes, okay. When you get to Shea Stadium, you go to gate B. You hear me? I'm like, yeah. He goes, ask for Vito Laterulli. Tell him Funzie from the waterfront sent you. He goes, you got it? And I'm like, yeah, I got it, I guess. I, I, I never heard these names before. So I get in the subway that takes me to Shea Stadium because there's three trips to get there. And I'm like, there's no way I'm doing that. No chance. But I keep saying their names over and over again. I'm like, I'm not forgetting the names. That's why I remember it so well. I said it a hundred times on the train ride. Get off the train. I go to Shea Stadium and it's packed. Wall-to-wall Mets fans. Nobody's selling a ticket. Everybody's looking to buy. And $30 isn't going to get you a ticket. So I'm like, all right, I'll go, I'll go to gate B. Let me, get, let me see. Because otherwise I'm going home. I'm not going to the game. I go to gate B and this old guy there and I go all meek sounding. I'm like, is Vito Laterulli here? And he says, who's asking? Like yells at me. And I'm pointing to nobody. I go, Funzy from the waterfront sent me. (laughs) And I'm looking down at his hands because I'm like, he's about to kick me out. And he opens the metal gates and he goes, come on in. And I was like, am I in trouble? Did I do something? Did it work? Was that like a magic code or something? I walk in and he goes, wait right here. He gets in the radio. Like two minutes later, some woman comes downstairs, real nice lady. She goes, come with me, sweetie. I'm like, all right. So now we're in the stadium. We're going up the tunnel. I'm like, I'm in. She goes, are you hungry? I said, sure. 
she goes, she goes, give me a hot dog and a pretzels and cracker dacks. I can't remember exactly what she got. She goes, you want a program? Sure. You want to go? She gets me a program all free. We start walking across the concourse. I'm like, this has got to be some type of a joke. This can't be real. This is happening down the steps towards home plate, closer and closer. And she opens up a seat in the front row of the load section, right behind home plate and says, have a great time. And I'm in the game. And a half an hour later, the Mets get their championship rings. They raise the banner. It's the greatest day of my life. Daryl Strawberry, my favorite player, hits a three-run homer. I go home, happiest kid on earth. But it wasn't until I got home that my dad asked me what happened. I tell him the story. I go tell my friend Scott what happened. I come back home and I hear my dad say, he's got no idea the mafia got him into that game. And I was like, oh my God. So that story I told for years because everybody wanted to hear it. I never knew the lesson in that story till about 10 years ago where I was like, he knew everything about connection and networking. He did everything the right way and he wanted no credit for it. He didn't say, do this, you know, I'll, you do this for me and then I'll do this back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or if you go to the game, you know, give me 50 bucks for this. All I know about Funzie is his name. 30 something years later. I don't know. Any, I don't know if he lived another year or 40 years, but all, but what I know is all he did was be curious about what I needed. He asked three questions, three questions that opened up doors for me that gave me one of the greatest experiences of my life. And with his connection and with his network, he was able to do that and he knew what to do with it. And I was like, the curiosity that he showed to wonder about what was going on. And then once he had those answers to be like, oh, I know somebody that I can help him out with. That is the essence to building a wealth of connection, using your connections and your network to open doors for other people and doing it without looking for credit without saying, oh, now do this for me. So I tell that story. I tell the Seth story. I tell Scott Bain's story because by doing that, you are literally keeping them alive and keeping their story alive by showing generosity and curiosity and connection opens doors for everybody. And it was, it was one of the best lessons I learned in my life. We are talking to Vincent Puglisi. He's a husband, father, community member, and mentor. He's also the author of Freelance to Freedom. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals. And let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to robotics to cybersecurity, where companies spend $150 billion annually, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community. Our crowd's accredited investors have already used the platform to invest over $1 billion in growing tech companies. Now you can invest in Sotero, S-O-T-E-R-O, which has developed a patented new approach to data protection that eliminates the gaps of traditional methods, securing any data asset, whether it's on-premise or in the cloud. Sotero is trusted by one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. Explore Sotero's potential at rcrowd.com slash EAI. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. You can join our crowd for free at rcrowd.com slash E-A-I. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at rcrowd.com slash E-A-I. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Vincent Puglisi. He is the founder of the Total Life Freedom Community, and his new book is titled The Wealth of Connection. Vincent, I want to go back to the story about Funzi, the mafia member. When you're talking about him, you quote Voltaire. You say, judge a man by his questions, not his answers. Tell me about the power of asking the right questions. I think this is one of the most underrated parts of this whole thing. I I think COVID has made things worse. I notice this when I go to networking events or just community events, how people are so wrapped up in just telling their story. It's almost like we've been locked up for two years. Let me get out all those words that I didn't get to say for two years. I'm just going to talk. It feels that way. And there's so, and and I sound like I'm judging here and maybe I am, but there's so little awareness in terms of the people that we're talking to lately. It's like, I'm going to keep talking. Even if you're looking around the room, bored out of your mind, I'm going to keep talking because I haven't been able to do this. And what I, what it is, is a lack of curiosity and lack of questions. The people that are the most engaged and the most engaging, the most liked are the most curious. And that, that quote by Voltaire, but also the idea that I can't remember where I heard it. I'm not sure if it was Kiyosaki, but he had a great line, which was questions, open minds and questions, open minds and statements, closed minds. And I truly believe that. But also the idea that the person that can, the person that asked the questions controls the conversation. I think a lot of times people think, oh, if I ask questions, like I'm not, you know, I'm ceding control or I'm not important. No, the one that asked the questions controls the conversation. I've learned that through our career by asking questions, people feel validated. People feel important by my curiosity towards them. I did a speaking gig one time and in between, I was the keynote. So I was there for the event and I would go to the different tables in between. And I would just say, what are you struggling with? Or I'd ask them questions and they would talk the entire time about what they're struggling with. And then at the end of the event, right before I went on, a woman came up to me and she was like, you're the best speaker we've ever had. And I said, I haven't even spoken yet. I could be terrible. (laughs) And she said, no, she goes, most speakers either show up at the very end and just give their presentation. Or if they are here early, they just talk about themselves the whole time. And she goes, and what we've all been talking about is that you went table to table and just asked us about us. And nobody ever asked us about us at all these events. And I just want to thank you for that. I'm like, what did that take? It took me being curious about them. Not me. I'm going to have my moment on stage. I can talk about myself, but 
to be able to go, hey, I'm asking them, you learn about what people's dreams are. You learn about what their goals are. And when you learn those things, you actually can do things to help them. And if you want to make a legacy or an impact, that's how you do it. Not by your statements, usually. It's by your questions that lead to the curiosity, just like Funzie. He asked questions, figured out what my dream was, opened the door for me. And now all these years later, he's still being talked about. Compare curiosity in a child versus a highly educated professional. Are we trained to be less curious? I think we are. Talk to any four-year-old. They are incredibly curious. Why is the sky blue? Why is this? And we're all like, I don't know. I haven't thought about that in forever. Like, I don't know. Look it up. Go to Google, right? Type of thing. But they're so curious. But over time, we are it's beaten out of us, in my opinion. I think we're we're so structured in terms of we need to learn algebra. We need to learn this. You need to do the things that are assigned to you that your questions become a deterrent to the school system and to your parents and to the parents because it's like you're actually, listen, we can't talk about this thing that you want to learn. We need to stay on schedule with what the curriculum says. And what happens over time, the kids go, well, why am I going to ask questions anyway? I just get in trouble for doing it. I'm going to follow along. Even if I don't care, I'm going to get a good enough grade to pass so I can leave all this behind and not remember any of it. So I think, and then you get 10-year-old, 12-year-old. There's all studies about this that they, the amount of questions, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's in the book. The number of questions that kids ask at four versus 10, and it dramatically declines because of that reason. And we just lose our curiosity. So we've talked about character. We've talked about curiosity. I want to move on to connections. You talk about networking. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me in the book, you draw a line between what networking is and what meaningful connections is. Tell us what, what's the difference. I hate the word networking. I can't stand it because it's so a, here, take my business card. Let me subtly try to get work from you or somebody that you know, and let me just make connections for my benefit. And that's what networking in so many ways has turned into, as opposed to genuine connections is which like, what, what is it about you that, that I want to connect with? I want to get to know more. I want to be able to bring you into my world and not only help you, but learn from you that we could do this together. And then we could build out around that. Who is it, you know, who is it that, you know, that you and I are a perfect example of this as we go on in time and we get to know each other better. It's like, oh, you need to know this person when you have character. When you have curiosity, you build solid connections, right? If you or I didn't have the character, we would have separated from each other by now. We wouldn't keep talking to each other, right? If, if we didn't have curiosity, if I just talked about myself, if you just talked about yourself, if you weren't interested in reading my book or I wasn't interested in reading yours, eventually it feels one way-ish. And it's like, yeah, either we're not interested or we don't feel like it's reciprocal at all. And then there's not a great connection. When you can build that foundation to a good connection, everything opens up. It's not networking. It's building connections because as we go further, you build collaboration from there, you build creation from there, and everybody becomes more successful around it. It's not about how can I build a Rolodex of people that I can call on when I need something, which I think a lot of ways networking has become. So you and I arguably met somewhat, at least through social media. How do you think social media has changed meaningful connection? I think it's done a lot of good in some ways. I really, I'm not one to bash it to complete, but there's a lot of downsides to it because it's allowed us to argue a lot more. I mean, just look at the last couple of years, what's happened, right? There's a nuance 
when we speak to one-to-one as opposed to me commenting on your Facebook post. There's not an italic that says sarcasm or (laughs) something that says, I kind of mean this, but I'm not totally sure, but I'm going to say it. It comes matter of fact, black and white. And we start arguing back and forth. And all of a sudden, you know, you post something then I comment on it. Then your friends who I don't even know who they are jump in to defend you, even though I'm not really fighting you, but now they, now we're separated. Now I'm arguing with somebody that I have no idea who they are. I don't care, but yet we're now arguing. And yet at the same time, all my friends are looking at it saying, well, you're kind of a hothead. Like you're getting involved, right? It's all being judged. Social media really puts a magnifying glass on all that. But at the same time, it allows you to connect and meet people you've never met before and develop relationships in ways that can be taking, taken one-to-one that really do develop. So I'm not anti it, but I think there's a lot of dangers that come from it in this world. We talk about making meaningful connections, but you also go as far as talk of talking about connecting the unconnected and okay. you bring about this idea of psychic compensation. What is psychic compensation? I never knew what that was until two years ago. I never knew the term existed except I lived it because when I was first starting out in photography, because that's what I did for 20 something years, I was struggling. I was trying, I had my selfish goals, man. I I had, I got to go make this. I didn't really care about what anybody else needed. I was, and a lot of people are there and I get it. And you need some selfish goals to get ahead. That's all I was about. So I'm working, let me see. I'm working as a waiter at, at this point. I'm working at a photo lab. If anybody remembers photo labs, developed film, you know, films like an ancient, you know, retro thing now, but literally <laughs> that's how we took pictures back in the nineties. And I was interning at a photo studio. So I'm trying so hard to be a sports photographer. It's my dream now, right? I finally figured out from my guidance counselor what I wanted to do. I'm in my early 20s and trying to make all the connections I can make, but nobody's having me because I'm not any good and I don't know anybody. So now that's a hard road to get to, but I have a big break. A guy comes in. I went to high school with his son, Alex, a guy named Fred Klein comes in and he's curious. So he starts asking me, what are you up to? You know, all your classmates are going to Harvard or Cornell or what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to be a photographer. And he was so cool. He's this high powered attorney. And he goes, I go, I'll be honest with you. You know, I've always enjoyed talking to you. He goes, I'm friends with Shelly Finkel. And I knew who Shelly Finkel was. Some people might not. He was the boxing promoter for Mike Tyson. And this was when Mike Tyson was, you know, the baddest man on the planet. He had some major connections and he goes, put together a portfolio and I'll bring it to sports illustrated for you. I'll see if you have a shot. And I'm like, this is my literally my dream sports. That's the pinnacle at that point. Like, you got to be kidding me. I can go from here to there. So I'm putting this portfolio together, having huge dreams. I'm going to work for sports illustrated and travel the world. And he brings it to them and he comes back a couple weeks later with my portfolio. And he goes, they said you showed promise, but you're a beginner. We, they really can't do anything. And I was like, I knew it was going to happen, but I was kind of a little, I dreamed, I kind of was a little deflated. And a couple of weeks later, I'm kind of getting really down on myself because nothing's happening. And he comes back in, develops his film and we're chatting. And I go, Fred, I said, I'm a loser. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just sitting here. And he goes to walk out when I said that. And he said to me, he goes, you're not a loser, Ben. He goes, but if you're still working here in five years, you're a loser. And that hit home because it's like, you're not a loser for trying to do what you're doing and struggling. But if you accept that and you don't move on from it, then it is on you. So I quit the job two weeks later. I said, I'm not going to be here in five years. If I'm not going to be here in five years, I might as well not be here now and let me go do what I got to do. And I went all in on it and created a 22-year career where I shot 
Super Bowls, World Series, got flown out for Muhammad Ali's birthday party, everything you can imagine I did. And once we faded from that, we, we ended that career and we started doing what we're doing now. I realized I never even told Fred. Fred has no idea what I did. He has no idea that his advice changed my life, changed the tra- trajectory of my life. So I messaged his son, Alex. I said, you, might, you don't know this, but your dad really helped me. I'd love to thank him for it. He didn't think he even did it. He's like, I don't, I don't know if that my dad, I don't know if that's my dad. I said, no, it's, it's him. <laughs> and I told him that story. And he goes, yeah, that sounds like my dad. It must be. Yeah. So he made a connection to us. And I get again the phone with Fred Klein 20 something years later. And I tell him the story. And he goes, he, and he told me his story about struggling. He went to the same high school I did. He graduated in 1959. I graduated in 1989. And we both had the same guidance counselor story. Hmm. He got a 1100 on his SAT. And they said to him, there's no way possible. You're not that smart. And he got a chip on his shoulder and he knew what he was going to do. Well, his mother told him, it's always better to give than receive. And you will always get something back from it, even if you don't know it. And so he starts telling the story. So he goes, what you did for me is you gave me psychic compensation. And so many people are looking for monetary compensation. But I know that if my job is to always put good out into the world, to help people, to be generous, to use my, and to be honest, which is what he did to me, good's going to happen. I might never know about it, but I can go to sleep at night knowing I'm getting psychic compensation for what I did. And it's almost the best type of compensation you can get. And I was like, that really answered the question of like, well, what do you even get for doing this? You don't know. Fundy doesn't know. Fred Klein doesn't know. Scott Bain, none of them know the impact that they had on my life, but they all get psychic compensation. And that's what I want to do because there's no, well, here's the reward I get. You don't know. You don't know what good happens when you put it out there, but it's happening. And if you know that, it makes you want to do more of it. You take it one step further because I know the names now, Fred Klein and Funzi and Scott Bain. And because I read your book and I'm conducting this interview, you say it's important to name names. Yeah. How did you realize how powerful that was? It, it's such an interesting thing because it bothers me when people give credit without saying names. It just bothers me. It irritates me. I was just talking to a friend that's a ghostwriter. I'm like, it irritates me that people don't give credit. There's all these other people writing this stuff. And they, now I get their agreement and I get it. But you, I, my job is to give credit for people that have helped me. That is part of what I do, part of my integrity. If I don't, if I heard a speech from Matthew McConaughey, it was an Oscar speech. It's actually a very famous one. And he gave, gives a story about, he had somebody go up to him and say, who's your hero? And, you know, he goes, my hero's me in 10 years. And he gave, it's a great speech. And I loved it. And I was irritated by it. Cause I'm like, why didn't you name his name or her name? Why didn't you say who it was? You had the opportunity with your platform to make this person validated by what they had done. And you basically said a person. And whenever you say a person told me this, that helped me a person, you know, made this, it's a mistake. And you're missing an opportunity to put people over, to lift other people up. So it's an obligation to me. To, to name names. Now, if you do something that pisses me off or I think is a terrible thing, I will tell the story of my podcast. I just won't name your name. I'll use it as an example, but I'm not <laughs> going to call you out, but the story is going to be out there. But if you did something to lift and to help and to give that, I it is, it is, it is in me to have to give your name. I want to move on to this idea of collaboration. You don't like the term networking. It doesn't feel natural or right to you. Yeah. On the other hand, you do talk about having a powerful 
network. Mm-hmm. What makes a powerful network? Does it have to be big? What kinds of people do you want in your network? It's 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 funny because this is why I encourage people to write books because you get so much clarity from your own ideas that you think, you know, but once you have to go through this painful, as you know, this painful process, very painful. Yes. You learn more about your own message than you ever would. Andy Andrews said like he wrote the book, the traveler's gift, and he learned more about his own book in the years after he wrote it than when he actually wrote it. Because when you speak on it, like we're doing here or you're on stage, you have to validate to people that don't really understand it what it is and you keep learning from it. So, so in terms of that, in terms of a network, if I, I go through this and I go, okay, collaboration in my view is kind of the fourth part of this all. If I am connected with people that don't have the character, they don't have the generous goals over selfish goals. They don't have the integrity. They're kind of not going to go very far in my world. Just like I wouldn't go as far in somebody else's world. If they don't have that, if they're not curious, they don't ask questions. If they're not interested in other people, we're we're not going very far again. If they don't have the interest to connect, if they're not like that and they don't want to connect others together, we're not going very far. But if you have all three of those, when you're at that point, you are a vital part of my network that I trust and I want to help and I want to connect because I know you have the intangibles of a good person in, in this quote unquote world, right? So it makes it so open for me to be like, hey, doc, you've got to meet this person or hey, you know, let's let's sit down and let's brainstorm for a few hours of how we can get you to where you want to get to. Once you get in that world, you're around people that like to collaborate, that like to connect, that like to connect others together, which is so much fun. Well, your network ex- expands, the people you meet expands. And all of a sudden, when you get to the collaboration phase, anything you make multiplies and grows because now other people and their audience are finding out about you. But if you don't have those other things in place, you're not getting on the podcast. You're not getting on the TV shows. You're not getting on the stages and you're sitting there wondering why can I do all this stuff and create this course and write this book, but nobody cares. And nobody cares because you didn't do all these things first. And that's where it gets to the creation part of it, where it's like, you can build it. They will not necessarily come if you don't have these other things in place. So building the network intentionally around those points to me is an integral part of this whole thing. You just mentioned creation and that spurs the thought in me. Most of us, when we go out to quote unquote, conquer the world, we usually start with creation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, in this book, you made that the last section of the five big important sections. Why did you put creation at the end? I struggled with this because there's a lot of, even right now, I want to have it earlier because we're always creating, you know, we're creating before we have the huge idea we're writing, we're thinking, we're writing down ideas. But the point, the reason why I did that was it was, it was on purpose because I I am not going to be under the impression that you are going to go step-by-step. This is not a step-by-step product. You're not going to go build your character and then build your career. Like, no, these things work together. But if you have if you develop the character, I had to develop it over years. I was very self-involved, very selfish, didn't have the integrity in place. As that grew and I got better with that and I learned, my connections became better. My curiosity became better. Everything's better now than it's ever been before because of that. So that foundation was laid later in life to where when I connected, my connections now are so much stronger and it's just so much better friendships that the collaborations are now better. So now... I release a book now and 
looks what happens. All these interviews, all these people wanting to share it, all these people wanting to promote. That only happened because the first four steps were in place. Now, if I would have done the same thing 15 years ago, I would have been beating people over the head to buy it and share it and incentivizing it and all those different things. But nobody really would have cared. And that's why you see people that release a book and they spend so much time in the content of it, but they don't have the connections. They don't have the relationships. And they go, why do I only have six reviews and nobody's talking about it? Because nobody cares because you haven't been in their life. So that's why I put creation at the end, because anything you create, once you've built those first four foundations, has a much higher likelihood of succeeding when you have that world around you. So I want to pull the conversation back to a thousand feet. I feel like when anyone sets out to do something new, they really feel like knowledge is the first step. And so after reading your book and talking to you about it, I wanted to pose that question to you. How important is good habits versus knowledge when you're talking about being successful at at your creation or doing what you want to do? Yeah, I'm hesitant because I'm like, I talk about this. I don't want to make like knowledge isn't important. Knowledge is incredibly important in terms of what we're doing. Like, I can't just BS you through this in conversation because, you know, we're friends, right? There needs to be a ton of knowledge and research behind all of it. But we always hear about, oh, they're a wealth of knowledge. Oh, they're a wealth of information. But we don't hear about people that are a wealth of connection. And that's where the title came from. Because a wealth of connection, they're the ones that really hold the cards. They're the ones that can look around and be like, you need to know this person. Or here's the thing that you need to think about. Or, hey, let's get together and do this. The people that are the wealth of connection, they are the unsung heroes in this whole thing. And they let everything go around. 87% 87 of jobs are found through referral. Who do you know? Who do you know that I should know? I have a position open, 500 applications, but you're going to go, do you know somebody that you trust, right? Do you know somebody that would be a good fit? And then the job gets filled and all the people that apply to 18 jobs don't get the job. So they might have all the knowledge in the world. They might have the great degree, but if they don't have that connection from within, they're going to have a much harder time going through it. So I think knowledge is important, obviously, but the connection side of it, that's where the name comes from, is it's going to open those doors and just make everything easier for what you want to do and the message that you want to spread. So Vincent, I wanted to thank you for coming on to talk about your new book, The Wealth of Connection. I was trying to sum up what it felt like to read your book. And I think the best metaphor I have is it was like dunking my head in a really cold bucket of water. And the reason why is it awakened and started synapses in my brain that I think were there, but weren't firing on all cylinders. I'm familiar enough with you and some of your message that it's not like reading what I read in your book was totally foreign to me. But in a sense, it woke me up in a way that I think I hadn't been in quite a while. So it was it was quite a lot of fun to read. I want to end this conversation the way I end every conversation by asking you, what is up next in your life? And if people want to buy The Wealth of Connection, when is it available? Where should they go? For me, this book is, is all on my mind right now, just the message around it. It's really kind of fun when you can write something and not be bored of it by the end of it. Because I think a lot of times like, well, I'm so tired of this. I had my first book. I was tired of the book before it published. I had just stressed over it. This one, it feels like it's just beginning because I think there's other books in there that can come off of this. I think there's so many deeper conversations that can happen, like we're doing today, that peel back the layers of the onion. So the idea of talking about this more, speaking on stages about this 
even even workshop type of stuff where we can go through this together because we can talk about this, but literally going through those connections in your life. Who are the people that did this for you? Have you thanked them? Have you written them a thank you note? Have you connected them to anybody else? There, I think this is an untapped resource because I'm hearing that a lot, like a paradigm shift. That's like the word that I'm getting from a lot of people as they're reading it. So I'm so, this is so exciting to me right now to go forward. John Rulin's a friend of mine. I'm not sure if you know John, but he talked about with this book, Giftology, five-year plan for the book. And that's what I have here. I want to continue to spread this message and talk about it. So yeah, that's, that's the main thing to, to buy it. You can go to our website, totallifefreedom.com. It's on Amazon, anywhere you buy books online on the bookstores. I'd love if anybody wanted to check it out. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I want to thank Vincent Puglisi. That's a wrap. Awesome. How we do? I think we did excellent. You tell me, is there anything you feel like we didn't discuss that you would have liked to talk about the book? No, no. I, I think I think it was laid out really well. It's so nice doing an interview when you've actually read the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't do an interview unless I've read the book. Or at least oh, I won't talk about it. Because yeah. then you get the whole, so tell me about yourself. It's like, what? I've lived like nine lives. Which one do you want me to start with? <laughs> where do you, where do you, when I was born, like, you know, what do you, so that whole thing. So to be able to go right into it, like you make it really easy to have this conversation. And I really appreciate it. No, I think, I thought it was solid. And I thought it was like, it, it was challenging to go, okay, you know, I don't want to keep telling the same thing. You want to bring nuance to it. So I love the idea to be able to tell the stories in, in a little bit of a different way and to be able to bring new stuff into it. And you give the leeway to do that. So I, I thought it was fantastic. Let me give you, I feel like, especially after reading your book, like, I feel like I really want to give you good and deep feedback about what I read. So first and foremost, I do what I said in the final parts is true. I really do feel like it was like ducking my head in water in all the best ways, like that kind of cold rush of waking you up and you're like, oh yeah, that's why I do this stuff. So I I think it was that kind of inspiration and that kind of um, jolt was a very strong part of the book. I think the storytelling is a very, very strong part of the book. Like, I think your stories are relevant, they're fun, they're interesting, and they really connect to your outline. Um, I think the organization is good. I think what you have to say, the message is on. Like, I think it's very you. I think it's very kind of what Vincent has learned from the Vincent I know, at least. Mm-hmm. Um very well put together, well organized. It flowed well. I have trouble finding something I can criticize. The only, and this is this is only like the tiny, tiny, tiniest bit of sugar, like strawberry on the top, is this idea of workshopping that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. If you and wanted to change anything, the only thing I'd say is you might try to put a little more workshopping in, like where because I think you've got such great ideas. I think you're setting yourself up actually for the next step is, well, how do we actually implement this into our life? So that would be the only thing I said, if you ever wanted to change anything, even just a small workshopping page at the end of each section would be the, and again, this is a minor, minor, minor critique. I agree. 
But I that agree. would be the only bit I could I could add as any kind of real criticism. Yeah. I struggle because I'm like, oh, I'm so I know it's needed and could be helpful, but I'm so concerned about losing the flow. Yeah. Yeah. So what I because I am so storytelling that what we're working on is its own separate workbook. Which would work very well, like a companion workbook, I think, yes. would, because because I think or, or a course or, you know, so it does leave you a lot of room to say, OK, you've read the book. You dig the ideas. Let's actually get granular now yeah. and talk about how you specifically do this. And so well, that I, does leave you that opening to kind of go ne- to the next. Totally. Step. And that's what's so exciting, because like like I'll say, you know, it takes a year. Well, maybe there's a year, maybe there's a 52 week course where every week you're, you are fed another thing that you can do and you can work. Cause we can totally build that. And that could be completely systemized. And, but just the idea, like, I love live. I love speaking. I love in person. Like, Oh, like even at a conference, like a two or our own two day workshop, we go into putting people over, we go into these different things. Cause we did it at our retreat last week. It worked really well. I'm like, okay, we tested that out. So I completely agree with you on that where, cause I'm so opposite of here are the things you should do that, I think it gets lost. Like, what are the actionable steps yeah. to do? And again, it, it depends. Like, I, I totally buy into what you're saying, too. There's there's a flow. And again, that does, it's a very different flow. I mean, I struggle that, too, with my writing, too. It's like, okay, how do I put something actionable in here in the it's midst hard. of this? It's hard. It's hard to get it right. Yeah. It is. It's, and and, it, and it's, it's the thing that, I don't know about you, but it'll wake me up at night. I'm like, oh, we didn't, <laughs> did that hit? And I, I think that's when it, you know that you care. Yeah. Huh. Because then you'll read certain books and be like, I don't think they cared at all. I think they just wanted to publish a book. And, and, and that's the worst. It's the uh, worst that can a book, like the worst feedback a book can be is it's, it's boring or not passionate, right? Yeah. Yep. Especially this kind of book. Like if you're reading nonfiction, like passion shows, man. If you care yep. what you're doing. Yep. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And, and, and I, I, I spent way too long in this book than I should have, but it's not about writing a book in terms of get a book done in 12 weeks. If it took another year to, if this is my, I'm an artist. And if it took a year to a year more to do it, this is my art. And I'm not publishing something that doesn't feel good with my own art. And it was laid out. Well, I mean, Thank I looked you. at this and said, okay, this is well done. Like there was no question about like organizationally wise, like I could tell you, this was very thoughtful about how you laid this out, how you put it together. Um, Would you be surprised show. to know that there was like six different titles and ideas of this book before it was actually? Yeah. It yeah. kind of, it was That's like, not that uncommon though. My yeah. manuscript, what I eventually, what's going to be our final version is like the third or fourth version. I rewrote it two or three times. Yeah. Um, which is frustrating as hell, but it is, but, but the end always ends up, or usually the end, especially if you have good people around you. Yeah the end product ends up a lot better than the totally. earlier iterations. Yeah. And, and how many books are you actually going to write in your life? And it's just not something I'm going to half-ass, yeah. right? It's just, I'm not going to, I'm going to give way more than I'm going to get back from this. And that's totally, that, that's the way it should be done. You've got to suffer for it, you know? As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.